0: It's um, 4 a.m. I've had to come to the kitchen. I can't sleep. I've got a heartburn. I've got a headache. Many people go to the kitchen in the middle of the night for a midnight snack. We've all been there. But British TV host Chris Van Tolken was there for a very different reason. He was recording a video diary. That's because Chris was tracking an experiment he was doing on himself. He switched from his regular healthy diet consisting of just 20% ultra-processed foods to a diet consisting of a whopping 80% ultra-processed foods. And he did it for exactly one month. And the results were not pretty. Here's Chris at a doctor's visit at the end of his four-week experiment. I have the increasing man boob.
1: And also your stomach looks quite...
0: Yeah.
1: Your weight went up by 6.5 kilograms in four weeks.
0: That's over 14 pounds. That's pretty shocking, and that was just in four weeks. This experiment may sound extreme, but Chris's 80% ultra-processed food diet is the same diet that about one in five people in the UK eat. He says he felt 10 years older on this diet. And it wasn't just Chris's body that changed. It was also his brain. The hunger hormone in his blood spiked 30%. Brain scans showed that the ultra-processed diet rewired the reward centers of his brain, causing him to crave these ultra-processed foods. And that was just after four weeks. So what does that mean for someone who lives on a diet of ultra-processed foods? Which, according to studies, is a lot of us, tens of millions of people around the world. How does it impact our bodies and our minds? And how can we learn to build a balanced diet with ultra-processed foods included? Welcome to Body Unboxed. I'm your host, Anahad O'Connor, and I'm here with our resident nutrition expert, Professor Joan Salji Blake. Hey, Dr. Joan. Thank you, Anahad. So great to have you here today. Today we're digging into a super important topic, one that's very nuanced. It's the topic of ultra-processed foods. We're looking at the ways that ultra-processed foods affect our health and our wellness. But We're also looking at the role that they play
2: in food equity and access, which are things that are often overlooked. We want to get into all the new research on ultra-processed foods, but we also want to address the very real limitations that many families experience when it comes to building a healthy diet for themselves and their families. And
0: before we go on, be sure to subscribe to Body Unboxed so you catch our bonus content where we dig even deeper into the science behind each episode. Today we have two great guests. First up, we have Kimberly Wilson. She runs a psychotherapy and nutrition practice in central London. She also hosts Stronger Minds, a podcast on topics such as food, lifestyle, psychology, and mental health. And she co-hosts the health science podcast, Made of Stronger Stuff. So she's definitely a podcast pro. Her forthcoming book is called Unprocessed, How the Food We Eat is fueling our mental health crisis, and it was just released on February 23rd.
2: So, Kimberly, hot off the press, unprocessed. Tell me, what is this book all about? This book really takes a lifespan
1: view of the relationship, interaction, and influence of nutrition on brain development and brain function. So, In my previous book, I'd looked kind of at adulthood, like you're an adult, you've got an adult brain, how do you look after it for as long as you can? In this one, I've really tried to look at, actually, what do we need to start building the foundations of good neuronal architecture, of good brain health from preconception through early life, childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, and older age as well. And really looking at the influence of our common, typical, modern diet, on our ability to build a healthy, functioning, happy, responsive brain.
2: Let me tell you something. You are so smart because everybody thinks when it comes to nutrition and the diet, it's all from the neck down. It's not just from the neck down, okay? It's from the neck up too. I mean, the the head is part, the brain is part of a healthy body, and gosh knows we need to nourish it. So you are really on the ball here. You know, a lot, Kimberly, has been in the news lately about ultra-processed foods. And what is the public's perception of ultra-processed? foods?
1: I think the public's perception of ultra processed foods is very, very confused. And it's really not surprising because a lot of the scientists are quite confused about a what they are, how to categorise them, and b really what the problem with them is. You know, there's a general sense that they're not great, but we're not really settled on why they're not great. So the latest attempt to get a decent handle on what they are have been the NOVA characterization, which breaks foods down into four categories from minimally processed or natural foods. So things that have been maybe dried, like beans that have been dried and packaged in a bag and rice and things like that, to group four, the ultra processed foods. And generally, ultra processed foods are those that are ready to eat, ready to heat, and for which there isn't a domestic equivalent of one of their cooking processes or their ingredients. You know, sometimes there is a process called extrusion where you're kind of using chemicals or high-speed centrifuges to strip meats off bones. You can't do that (laughs) in a domestic kitchen. Or maybe you have the isolate of whey proteins. You're not getting that in your supermarket shelf. So that would be classified as an ultra-processed ingredient in an ultra-processed food the complication comes with a food manufacturers are able to label these foods as healthy nutritious vitamin enriched high fiber various kind of health claims can be made which to the consumer make them seem like very very healthy nutritious choices but what the scientists would categorize as an ultra processed food so there's a bit of a conflict between what the scientists are saying, and then the influence of the food manufacturers and of food advertising.
2: Right. I mean, jelly beans are jelly beans. You know what I mean? They're not green beans. We know this, right? <laughs> this ultra processed food is very, very confusing because you said that, you know, all that mechanical things that may go on. But you know, when you said that a soy isolates, I said, mm, that's in my soy burger, my vegetarian mm-hmm. burger. So now Is that a bad thing? Well, this is it.
1: And I I try not to use kind of moral language around foods because it's all about context. But strictly, yes, you know, your soy protein veggie burger would be considered an ultra-processed food. It gets complicated as to, you know, whether there are other things in it that might be considered very, very ultra processed, or whether we can be okay with a bit of soy protein mixed in with, you know, chopped onions and fresh herbs and garlic and all of that sort of stuff. So it's really about the context in which that ingredient sits within the food itself And then the context of that food in your broader diet. Talking about jelly beans, let's use that example. If you have just finished a marathon, you've done a distance race. I have a friend of mine, her favourite distance, her favourite distance is 40 kilometres. makes me sick. But she takes, you know, gel patches and jelly beans with her for fast energy. And she would slap me in my face if I were chasing after her with a carrot saying, have this low glycemic sugar, right? So for that context, for that activity, for that need, that jelly beans are fine. However, if 80% of my diet was chocolate or jelly beans, then I'd be in trouble. So the odd piece of chocolate is not gonna be a problem in the context of a nutrient dense diet that is largely unprocessed and that I enjoy. But if I'm eating most of my foods that are nutritionally depleted and ultra processed, then my brain is gonna be struggling.
2: You know, um, I'm Italian, and I, I can remember my grandmother always having a pot of fresh tomato sauce on the stove. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's two in the morning, two in the afternoon. It didn't matter. It was always simmering. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when I was researching this episode, I found out that in Italy, my people, only 18% of adults' daily calories come from these you know, very ultra-processed foods. Mm-hmm. But in the U.S. and in the U.K., it's like over 55%. So what's yeah. going on here?
1: So I think what happened to the UK and the US, I think there's a couple of things. One is that our countries were really affected by the Industrial Revolution. You know, a lot of the big changes, the steel mills, the steam trains, the shipbuilding happened in our countries or, or very quickly spread across and the industrial revolution and the need for workers and the efficiency and you know new daily schedules shifted our relationship with eating it meant that our, our eating times had to change and actually we've seen an acceleration of that people are eating more quickly everything needs to be more efficient don't bother chewing just have a meal replacement drink all of that stuff is still continuing so i think the industrial revolution made a big change to the way that we relate to our food but also I think other nations have just been much more protective of their food cultures, you know, and we know, for example, that France is really protective of its culture in general, in terms of even the number of foreign language songs are allowed to be in its charts, but also, you know, a real sense of, pride and protection around the culinary history. And Italians are, you know, famously proud of their food uh, and protective of it. And, and and it's that. And I think where the UK and US have moved towards kind of innovation and technology, actually the food culture has been a bit of a casualty of that.
2: Right. And you know, what about the lifestyle? I mean, how is this impacting our, our food culture, our food choices and what and mm. what we choose?
1: Well, actually, I looked at it because I was thinking, are we eating more convenience foods because we have less time because we're working more? And actually, in the UK over the last 20 years, that's not the case. If anything, we're working slightly less than we were back in 1997 and thereabouts. But I think what we have allowed to happen is, certainly in the UK, is that we've allowed for cooking to be sold to us as a chore, as, you know, something that's a hassle. Why would you waste your time? You could be hustling, you could be working harder, you could be, you know, don't be a slave to the kitchen. It's sold to us as, you know, don't cook, don't bother doing that, just just eat. But also that, again, I think we have Both of our cultures, particularly, are are quite competitive. And that competition drives a desire for efficiency and being quicker. And, you know, we don't have time for the lovely continental leisurely lunches that take two hours. Most workers in the UK are having a sandwich over their desks, dripping crumbs onto their keyboards, right? So I think there's this kind of combination of the highly competitive, independent, maybe capitalistic societies that kind of drive this need for efficiency and anything that takes up our time and cooking and eating, selecting foods, preparation of it, sitting down and enjoying it in a leisurely pace takes up a lot of time. And that becomes one of the things that's sacrificed.
2: What about access, Kimberly? What's access to like healthy foods, affordable foods? How does that play into all this?
1: In a few ways. So again, I think the UK society, we are the most Unequal society in Europe. I think you guys are the most unequal western society and i think when that happens when you have this very wide gap between the haves and the have nots then everything falls apart really so we have a widening gap in terms of of health outcomes so the poorest people in the uk here become sick 20 years or 19 and a half years before the wealthiest woman and the poorest people here die 10 years beforehand and all of that is part of access to healthy food because nutritious food costs around three times more per calorie than the ultra-processed, less nutrient-rich uh, alternative. Less access to healthcare, less less access to green space, having to work more and longer hours, be on your feet more, more stress. So I think access, the environment, all plays into the opportunity to cook and eat a
2: nourishing meal. Right, right, right. And, and, And that goes to what your book is about. So what is that connection between food and nutrients and your brain and mental health?
1: I mean, it's extensive. So for example, we know that a woman who is getting less iodine, so iodine is, you know, the nutrient that makes thyroid hormones. It's found predominantly essentially in fish, seaweed and in dairy products. And there is a correlation between maternal iodine during pregnancy and child IQ, and that's well established. The World Health Organization says that low iodine is, you know, the most widespread preventable cause of, of brain damage worldwide. So that's well established. But 67% of women in the UK are iodine deficient, nearly 70% deficiency of an of a nutrient that the World Health Organization knows is a problem. Similarly, there are correlation again observational correlational studies that show that the lower the mother's omega-3 during pregnancy, the smaller the baby's brain volume and the less connectivity between parts of the brain. And connectivity seems to be quite, you know, crudely, but seems to be related to overall IQ. And IQ is associated with later earnings. There's a real correlation between IQ and lifetime earnings. And so you have these little steps like maternal nutrition. Of course, maternal nutrition is going to be associated with the mother's income and her status and all of that sort of thing. But we can see how it becomes a cycle that if she doesn't have the opportunity to have proper nutrition, her baby's brain is compromised from the beginning and then it's an onward trajectory.
2: So that can be from a diet chronically robust and less than healthy foods. And it can also be because you don't have enough food
1: Oh, absolutely, yes. And this is one of the real concerns at the moment, is what the government are calling a cost of living crisis. And what we know is that the first casualty when people have to try to stretch their money is food. And of that food, the very first casualties are fresh fruits and vegetables. So we know that as soon as people have to try to look at their food budget, the things that go out of the window, because they are more expensive per calorie, are the most nutrient-dense foods. So there's that part, the kind of cost of living poverty crisis. But also, I talk quite a lot about free school meals and child hunger. Children's brains are rapidly developing and your brain is the hungriest organ in your body it has a constant demand for nutrients babies brains children's brains are developing even faster than that constant demand for energy and nutrients and so the idea that we have children in the UK so 4.3 million living in in poverty and of those nearly a million eight hundred thousand don't fall through the gap of eligibility for free school meals in the UK. So they're poor, but not quite poor enough. But their families still can't quite make ends meet. There's increased risk of suicidality, depression in children who are hungry or food insecure.
2: Uh, that's why we have school lunch and school breakfast here in the states. But you know, it still uh, need to be improved. Kimberly, this is your second book. What you know propelled you to write the second book on this topic?
1: largely it was the injustice, you know, the unfairness that I was seeing. The interesting thing about my practice is that I went from working in a prison to working in a private practice in quite an exclusive part of London. And so I went really from people who were very poor, low in economic status, many of whom would be considered in kind of a classical sense as the underclass to working with people who were, at times, landed gentry, you know, lady this and that, people with several homes and one in France and, a, you know, all of this stuff. And just seeing the sheer disparity kind of writ large. And London is it's kind of famous for that. You know, you can go around the corner to, from refugee centre and suddenly you're in this kind of very swanky, expensive place. You know, that's this kind of disparity sits side by side along with some of the studies that were coming out while I was working in prison, that was showing that just simply improving nutrition through supplementation in these cases was reducing violence by about 30%. And so it really raised the question of, how are we holding people culpable for their actions, for their decisions? If the machinery that is making those decisions is impaired by nutrient deficiencies that they are unaware of. Where is the fairness in this? Where is the justice in this? And if we're really going to call ourselves, you know, a, a civil society, then how are we gonna accept that we have a million children going hungry? How are we going to accept that we're just, that this is happening and we're just gonna walk on by? So it was really, I think, a, a question of fairness.
2: Kimberly, I wanna thank you so much for joining us my, today.
1: My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Dr. Joan, it's so cool that you got to speak with Kimberly. I really loved hearing her perspective on this. Now, we also spoke with Sarah Bowen, who has another take on processed foods. And she
2: talked about it in a really fascinating book on food insecurity. That's right. Sarah is a professor of sociology at North Carolina State University and the co-author of the book, Pressure Cooker, Why Home Cooking Won't Solve Our Problems and What We Can Do About It. You know, Sarah, I love the title of the book, and this is so great. And all foods are processed. I mean, hello, when you get an apple, you have to wash it, and you automatically... um it became processed. And you know something, Sarah, you know this, and Anaheim, I know you know this, that baby carrots are not grown as baby carrots. (laughs) They're big carrots that are made into baby carrots. So hello, they're processed as such. Sarah, do you really think processed foods have really changed a lot over the years?
3: Well, certainly there are a lot more of them than there used to be. Um, If you think of an average grocery store, I often think of processed foods as a lot of those foods that are in the middle aisles, the aisles that just go back and forth and on and on. That is a very big section of the grocery store now. And even crackers or chips, like there's many more varieties than there used to be. So I think we've had processed foods in some form for quite a while, but we certainly have a much bigger array of them. They're much easier to access and they're relatively cheap.
2: You know, I'm big on, you know, let's not waste a good pandemic. That's what I've been saying forever since we, I don't even know if we're out of this pandemic. But what I found that during the pandemic, people were hunkering down. So they actually had to cook more meals at home. So cooking at home. Is a good thing, but you know it's Thursday, and you know it's hard to start a fresh chicken and roast potatoes and you know fresh broccoli and steaming up. Where you could help with some frozen vegetables, you can have some healthy processed foods. Can be quite time efficient for those who are time and prepared, affordable and processed. But processed because they can go on the table more quickly but still have good nutrition?
3: Well, I think the pandemic, we did see, especially at the beginning, lots of talk about people cooking more from scratch and making their own bread and all of that. One thing I noticed about the pandemic too, though, is that maybe people who hadn't seen it before saw how hard it is to cook day in and day out every single day. Like maybe people that had the money that would have gotten takeout or gone out to eat or even just like, had different options. Our shopping options were more limited, especially at the beginning of the pandemic and people felt the burnout. And a lot of our research has focused on poor and working class families who are cooking. Most of the people in our study were cooking almost every single day. So they felt that drudgery and processed foods can fill in there too. It's true that there is research showing that people who cook more tend to have healthier foods, that portion sizes go down but if you're cooking all the time, also you it is a lot of work. And so, like for the families in our studies, sometimes processed food was a way to get through that. You know, there's a reason people like processed foods, and the people that we interviewed, all of them were women, all of them were mothers, and they held themselves, some of them, to really high standards. They felt really guilty sometimes for not putting in the time to make something from scratch. And you know, one of the conclusions of our book was like we should value food and we should be able to value food when someone puts in that time and does that work. And we should be able to value a frozen pizza for what it is. Like it's the perfect solution at the end of the day. That's what I'm giving my kids today. Um, I already decided. (laughs) (laughs) And that's right. (laughs)
0: Same here. It's pizza night in my house on Fridays for the kids.
2: (laughs) And you know, Sarah, you're you're spot on. I mean, that isn't right. Don't shame people for, you know, having to put a frozen pizza on the table. Don't shame them for having macaroni and cheese, which I love all the time. Add beans to it, add sauce. That's very, very affordable. So I think that's great. And, And I love that that's what you were talking about in your book.
3: So at the same time, one thing I've been thinking about, especially as these studies have come out suggesting that there could be health implications to eating a lot of processed foods, is like, what are we doing about this? So I think people in the United States are under a crunch of both money and time that is not getting better. We've seen that during the pandemic. We see it going forward now. And so instead of just telling people like, do better. We need to recognize that. And if it's important that people have the time and the resources to cook from scratch, then we need to change some big things to make that possible.
0: Yeah. I think, I think you bring up some really excellent points there. And you know, you mentioned that there is this growing research showing the health implications of eating ultra processed foods in particular, you know, not so much the the canned beans and, you know, baby carrots and bagged spinach, which is also processed, but the ultra processed things like, you know, the, uh, Doritos and uh, the really sugary foods and all the additives, I'd love to dig a little deeper into your book, Pressure Cooker. I think it really gives another perspective on the conventional wisdom, which is, you know, if you read Michael, Michael Pollan, the advice is, you know, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, and we should all be, you know, cooking at home. But you studied in your book, I think it was 168 families. Um, which I thought was fascinating. And you got to really get inside people's homes and see why are they choosing these foods. Uh, Americans are getting like 60% of their calories from ultra-processed foods. And you got to see, you know, on the ground why that is. It's not just, we're not just eating them because they taste good. There's lots of other factors involved. So with these 168 families that you studied, what were some of the big factors, you know, that led them to consume these processed foods? And what were some of the obstacles to conventional wisdom of eating real, quote unquote, real food?
3: Yeah. So I think there's two points I could make. One is that when someone says we need to cook more from scratch, and this is kind of how the book started, we think like, who is the we here? It's women. Like women still do most of the cooking in this country and have less leisure time and experience these time crunches and experience all of the stress related to parenting, but also specifically around food. And so when we say we need to do better. It's really you need to do better, and so like that's kind of the starting point. And we interviewed 168 women to see what their experiences were. The biggest part of the study was a, was specifically with poor and working class moms in North Carolina. And my co-author Jocelyn also interviewed some middle class moms as part of her dissertation. So with the poor and working class moms, I think the key issue was this issue of time and money especially now, even more than when we started that study 10 years ago, if you have enough money, there are some options now. You can get your HelloFresh, your meal kits, like, you know, it comes all prepared. They make some of the decisions. You can buy some of the stuff pre-chopped. If you don't have that kind of money, then you have to put in the time. And, you know, if you're working two jobs or you're working one job, but your schedule changes, you don't have childcare, you're running back and forth. Like there's not a lot of ways you can buy yourself out of that conundrum but you can buy the frozen pizza or the ramen or the tv dinner we also saw other things though that i think are sometimes overlooked sometimes when people are talking about this things like processed food lasts a long time so it's not going to go bad we waste a lot of food in this country like household food waste is high the kind of house food that gets wasted the most is exactly the stuff that they are telling us to eat fresh produce but if you don't eat it or people don't like it, it goes bad. Also for some of the moms in our study, you, you choose things that kids are going to like, because again, like the expert advice is that you're supposed to introduce your kid to a new vegetable 20 times, like they reject it 19 times. And then on the 20th time, is when they might say yes. But if you don't have a lot of money, you're not going to do that. And then finally, one thing that I think surprised us a little is that a lot of the families in our study didn't even have basic kitchen supplies. I think sometimes when you hear these conversations, that's kind of Accepted as a given that, of course, people would have knives and cutting boards, like basic things. But, like, many people did not have a sharp knife. They did not have basic containers to store the food. The stove didn't always work. And so, like, a few families were even living in hotels or in places like that where they didn't have a stove. So, I think all the things that you need to make that from scratch dinner really, it's really quite a bit. And if we don't address those, then just telling people to stop doing it is. Pointless,
0: yeah, those are excellent points. I mean, I, I even in, in my household, I have found that I like to buy fresh fruits and vegetables, of, of course, and I go to Trader Joe's to try to get some affordable versions, and I like to buy blueberries, but I find that even you know, once I buy them and bring them home, it's like a race to the clock to how long before they, uh, <laughs> before I they feel start like getting moldy. Those
3: molded. go bad. So they fast. go
0: bad <laughs> within like two days. They start growing yes. mold and fuzz. So we're always, even though we love fresh fruits, we're always throwing them in the garbage or some of them in the garbage because they go off so quickly. And we just kind of take that for granted that we have that luxury. But for a lot of families in the United States and other parts of the world, you know, that's one thing I learned from your book, which is they don't have that. Luxury. You know, you can't buy five or $10 on a packet of fresh blueberries that's going to be rotten in a two or three days. And so you can buy processed versions that are frozen or canned. So I think there are a lot of big and important obstacles you mentioned there. And there are some pros to, you know, buying these processed foods. So I'd love to know um, what are some of your recommendations? Because as we discussed, there are the health implications of the ultra-processed foods in particular, which can be very convenient and affordable and really the only option for a lot of people. And, and then these pros and cons. So what are your recommendations sort of going forward? Do we need to address the food system here?
3: Yes, I think we need to address the food system. Food companies are very good at profiting from what we need and seeing these gaps. And like there are gaps in sort of our care infrastructure in this country, and they've kind of build in. So, although I think there probably are some things to do at the food system level for sure, some of the things that we thought about most with the book are how do we address these gaps? And I think there are three big ones. So, the first is about families and time. So, the US is unique. We are uniquely bad at supporting families. We do not have free or even universally subsidized childcare. We don't have universal paid parental leave. We don't have all these things. So if it matters that people spend more time cooking, or that they have that time, we need to think about the reasons they don't have that time and offer more support for families and especially for mothers. And also, speaking of mothers, we've talked about this book a lot, and people are like, what about the dads? And in most, the vast majority of the households in our study, the fathers, the men were not doing much of the cooking. In my house, my husband does more of the cooking than I do. So I know that that's <laughs> not always the case, but I think that that's- I'm a raising my hand a... <laughs> because I am one of the
0: rare exceptions where I do- most of the cooking in my house, but my wife does the lion's share of all the other work, but I like to (laughs) do the cooking.
3: It definitely is changing, which is really important, but it needs to change even more. So, So that's one thing, like giving people and giving moms more support and especially at the level of like government policy and the kind of things that we all need to have this time to invest in kids and in care work, which includes food, but not just food. The second thing is that because for me, this is also partly an issue of economic inequality. Like A lot of our study was with poor and working class families who were really struggling to get by, and processed foods was one of the ways they did that. They did not go out to eat very much, but they did make ramen and TV dinners and these things that are cheap and that are ways to fill kids. People need more money for food. And we saw during the pandemic, they expanded SNAP, expanded childcare tax credit. They had a PEBT program that was specific money for people that had been getting free and reduced lunch when they were out of school. Like people, They did kind of expand a lot of these programs and food insecurity went down. It worked. It really surprised me in a way that the government responded so quickly because it was very quick. It was kind of this natural experiment. And now it's all being cut. The expanded SNAP is ending this month. And that will hurt people. That will make it less possible for them to buy the foods they need for their families. Um, We asked the people in our study, you know, if you had a little bit more money, this was the pre-pandemic study, what would you buy? And the top answer was fresh fruit. Like that's what people wanted to buy. So people need more money to be able to do that.
2: Sarah, this is just so fascinating. And, And first of all, and who knew that you cooked? All right, this is—I <laughs> mean, this is the best-kept secret of the whole wide world. And I do make all the food, all the dinner in the household. <laughs> but I think what we have to do here is stop food shaming. Okay, there's nothing when you say that that the center of the aisle has what they called b- been uh, this myth that it's processed food. First of all, all the food in the entire supermarket has been processed inside in the middle are affordable, good foods. So stop food shaming canned vegetables, canned fruit, canned beans, frozen vegetables, frozen pizzas. Stop shaming this. These are good ways to get food on the table and maybe we enhance it. You take the frozen pizza, and you put the frozen vegetables on top of it, voila, you got dinner in, you know, that really takes a little time prep and that people who are giving this to their children, especially in our tight budget, are feeling good about it. And, and that's what I think this is what we have to all do is stop this food shaming.
3: I agree with that for sure. Our study and m- many studies have found that like moms feel so much guilt and shame around food and all of the moms we interviewed, like said, that was one of the most important things they did. They were trying, they were putting in the time. They felt so much shame. And I also think it's important to acknowledge that that shame is also tied to class and race. Like, there is a certain shame around processed foods in general, ultra processed foods. But like we have this idea that like the organic fruit roll up things the organic fruit snacks are okay because they're like fancy and organic but the regular ones are bad or opting out or my students and I were just talking about this week like one day I realized like oh a baguette a baguette is white bread like you know wonder bread totally terrible a baguette it's French it's fancy so we need to stop shaming all moms and we also need to recognize that moms of color and poor moms get shamed and they're subject to more risk when that shame happens. Yeah.
2: That's right. So uh, we got we got to have a new hashtag. Stop food shaming. All right. We got to do this and maybe hold up a can opener or, or a frozen bag of vegetables and say, go for it.
3: One thing I I think about is that with processed foods, like if we want people to cook more from scratch, it's easy to say you go cook from scratch in your home, like just do it better. It's harder to think like, what are we as a country? What are we collectively doing? And so I have kids in school. I think about school lunch. My kids eat school lunch. I'm very glad that it exists. It helps me a lot as a mom. I think school lunch is a great thing, but a lot of those meals are processed. Like it's a lot of chips, pizza, Price, you know, they have to meet certain health standards, but there is a lot of processed foods. And so I think like, if this is important, we should show that as a country, but that would be very difficult. We'd have to invest more in the workers. They'd need more training. They'd need more time. They need to be paid more. We'd have to rehaul lots of the kitchens because they don't have the infrastructure. We have to think about like the ingredients because it would be harder. They'd be going bad faster. And that would be really hard But I think it's worth it. And it also kind of, when you start thinking about how complicated it is at a school level, it makes you realize like, oh yeah, this isn't actually that easy to do in a house either. We just kind of, it's easy to say, but it's not actually easy to do.
0: Yeah, that's such an important point because uh, I believe studies show that children get the vast majority of their calories each day at school. So if we want to improve children's diets, working and focusing on school food will go a long way. So I think that's an excellent point. I just want to wrap by saying two things. First off, you're both welcome anytime uh, to my house for a home-cooked meal. As I said, I do the cooking. Sounds great. (laughs) Anytime.
2: Yes, Sarah, just wait until we get that address. Yeah, whatever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then second, um, I think, you know, your book is so important and I really encourage our listeners to go read it because this is such a complicated issue. So thank you so much for this today.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: Joan, we had such great conversations today and I thought that we got a a lot of really great perspectives and insights and balance. And and my take on this is that ultra-processed foods, some of them can be very harmful for you, but at the same time, there are some of them that do provide a lot of nutrition and it's not realistic for everyone to exclude them from your diet because... They can be nutritious and they are very affordable, very convenient, uh, shelf stable, and long lasting. And so, for a lot of people, you should try to seek a sort of balance. What was your take on this?
2: You're right, Anahad. You know, what we need to be limiting is too much of the sweets and the treats. We have too much of those kinds of ultra processed foods in our diet. But on the other side, there are some. Ultra processed foods, or they are categorized as such as breakfast cereals, which are a great source of good nutrition in the morning. They could be whole grain, they could have very low amounts of sugar and a lot of good nutrition. And also, the other thing is we want to take into account the busy, busy family life. And so, like you said, Anna Hahn, if one day that you have frozen pizza for a dinner, you can go and put some fresh vegetables on it or frozen vegetables on it. And you know something, that's not a half bad dinner and even though it was more processed
0: we hope you found this episode both educational and entertaining remember we're not providing you individual medical advice so take your family's medical questions to your doctor especially before starting any new diet or health routine and for medical emergencies contact emergency services
2: and don't forget to subscribe to body unboxed where you get your podcast so you don't miss out on any bonus content i'll be reading relevant content from my book nutrition and you and we'll go even deeper into the science behind processed foods so join us again next week where we're talking
0: about something really controversial can food be addictive also If you're looking for more in-depth learning experiences on anatomy and physiology or other topics, sign up for Pearson Plus today at PearsonPlus.com to explore content from experts like Joan Salji Blake. Thank you so much for joining us on Body Unboxed by Pearson.